0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined today by Madeleine Davies, Deputy News Editor, and Tim Wyatt, our Digital Editor. The tragic killing of 22 people in a suicide bombing in Manchester on Monday has provoked proper anger and rage that must be directed into a force for good. Those are the words of the Bishop of Manchester, Dr David Walker. Madeleine Davies has been following this very difficult story closely. Madeline, who have you been speaking to?
1: Thanks Ed. I've been speaking to priests and an imam in Oldham um, which was the home of Alison Howe and Lisa Lees who were two mothers who were killed while waiting to collect their daughters um, at the concert. I was asking them about the impact of that on their community um, and how religious leaders are responding. So the um, parish vicar Derek Palmer talked about how the church had been a place where people could come Um, wait in silence, pray and light candles. And he spoke of a desire which he sensed to pull together and be united. Um, He recalled the race riots in Oldham in 2001 and suggested that people didn't want to return to those days, that there was a desire to pull together um, and not be divided in the way that some some would want. I also spoke to um, one of the leaders of an interfaith group, the Reverend David Hanson. Uh, He leaves that group with Imam Shakur Mansour of the Manchester City Centre Mosque. Um, Both of them talked about work that was underway to build bridges between communities in Oldham. Um, I also asked the Imam about the duty um, to respond to attacks, um, whether it was difficult to condemn something which he regards as having nothing to do with his faith. Um, And he felt that it was important to do that, that it's important to condemn this. Um, He says, simply because we do not want anybody to do these things in the name of our religion. Um, It was notable that um, a large number of imams gathered very quickly in Manchester, um, both to pray for the victims, but also to issue a statement very strongly condemning what had occurred.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? There have been some quite striking and moving pictures coming from out of Manchester in the last few days. Uh, various vigils in, in Albert Square and elsewhere of people of all religions, um, Muslims, Jews, Christians, and, and just ordinary um, non, non-believing non Mancunians who have all kind of gathered together and there's a really really striking sense of unity as the city pulls together in the wake of this terrible event.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the most moving things I saw was um, a Syrian woman who'd been given refuge in Manchester. Um, and she could sort of barely respond to the questions from the interviewer as she was crying, and um, just the sort of disbelief that something which she presumably thought she'd escaped had come to her new home, and just such empathy for the for the families for the victims.
0: I mean, there've been vigils uh, beyond Manchester, haven't there? I mean, throughout the country, people gathering to pray and remember.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely, and quite notable that many of those have been interfaith events. So, for example, in Bradford, um, it was a, a specifically interfaith vigil. Um, also notable that the Bishop of Manchester has just been such a a prominent figure um, immediately um, in the wake of the attacks you know both in terms of media interviews and in terms of being um, a leader at these huge public gatherings Um, and I think people responding very much to his message um, one of his messages was that love ultimately would win he's talked about um, being united being Manchester I think really capturing, but also shaping the public mood.
2: And what's the practical effect been? We've heard a lot of public events around the country have been cancelled or toned down because of security fears. Has that affected churches and cathedrals?
1: Yeah, so notably Birmingham Cathedral was closed um, just for 24 hours. And I spoke to um, the woman who's sort of organizing um, that. She talked about how cathedrals are very different. Their security provisions are very different. Um, the threats that they might face are very different. So, for example, in Birmingham, um, it's a fairly small building, but in a very crowded city centre, in an area where there have been a number of terrorism-related arrests. Um, and the cathedral was closed because um, it was decided that the resources just weren't there to be able to um, to protect people going into the cathedral. It's now open again, um, but it just highlights the fact that... Um, In many ways um places of worship are on the front line they are potential targets um they do require security and um they're responding in different ways depending on where they are
2: i thought it was quite interesting and striking that birmingham cathedral even after it closed its doors held some kind of service or vigil in the square outside even though pictures show under the watchful eye of some armed police that was quite a juxtaposition wasn't it
1: Yeah, so um, Birmingham Cathedral actually said that their um, prayer station, for example, was used more than ever. Um, So possibly sort of being on the streets um, was visited by people who maybe would never cross the threshold of a church ordinarily. Um, I also spoke to the Dean of Manchester who held prayers the day after the attack in the street and talked about how that was appropriate um, in some sense, that even though they sort of missed their beautiful building um, it just felt right to be on the streets right to be with people um, and he also talked about how the community perhaps looks to the cv e, um, the national church um, to provide spiritual leadership um, and to provide spaces um, even if those spaces aren't within four walls for people to gather and to reflect <laughs>
0: The church commissioners have just published their results for 2016. They posted a 17% return, the best for several decades. Channeling Harold Macmillan, Sir Andreas Whittam-Smith, the first church estates commissioner, said that they had never had it so good. Tim,
2: you've been following the story. Yeah, that's right. Um, It's quite a striking... A quote from Sir Andreas, his introduction to the annual report, which details this um, extraordinarily impressive return of 17.1% in 2016. Uh, he writes this, looking at the recent performance of stock markets and at the church commissioner's performance, I'm reminded of the words of Harold Macmillan. Let us be frank about it. Most of our people have never had it so good. Um, so the total value of the fund grew by um, almost 900 million pounds in the 12 months. And um, And the only time they think that even better returns have been seen were immediately after the Second World War and for a brief period during the tech bubble of the 1990s.
0: What's behind this? Have they got some really good people managing the investments? Or is it more down to to luck or market conditions?
2: Um, I think it's a combination of the above. Um, I spoke to the Secretary of the Church Commissioners, who's kind of their chief executive, Andrew Brown, and he said uh, he was very insistent that this is not, Luck, they're not casting bets, they're making educated investments. But he did say, um, you know, almost all the stock markets that they're investing in, um, some developing markets, American equities, um, have all had a really, really strong year, so they're clearly coasting on the back of a wave there. But he was also quick to say that, um, the people that the church commissioners employ to manage their investments are also very talented people, and they've, um, and that's certainly true. I mean, the church commissioners. 17% 17% return is, is genuinely among the best in the world last year and it certainly matches up to some of the uh, most admired endowment funds around the world. They really have a lot to be proud of. The commissioners are quite activist shareholders, aren't they? They're, they're not afraid of putting some pressure on companies. That's right. They, um, there's The other side of their report is really explaining how uh, active they are with their shareholdings and I think increasingly so. Um, so their, their main three priorities that they're trying to wield some clout are around climate change Um, They've been working with other uh, shareholders for big oil companies like Shell and BP to and they've got resolutions passed which will compel the boards to do more reporting on the on the risks of climate change. And then last year they moved on to some mining companies and got the backing of firms like Rio Tinto, Glencore and Anglo American. These are literally some of the the largest mining companies in the world. Um, uh, Their next uh, battle is at Exxon, um, an an American energy company which fought off a a climate change resolution, um, but they're trying again uh, next week. Um, and the other two things they're trying to be more active on are um, the gender balance on board, so they now vote against any board composition if there aren't at least 25% women on it, and also what they would see as excessive executive pay. There are some campaigners
0: who say that they should go further and um, divest from companies entirely. Well, What do they say
2: to that? Yeah, so I put those questions to um, Andrew Brown when I spoke to him, and I said where do you draw the line um if the exxon resolution for example fails that would be two years in a row the board has shown no constructive engagement it's not responding to the church commissioners attempt to negotiate surely at this point you have to just walk away and he said he wouldn't put a timetable on it and he wouldn't he said he wouldn't uh, give any kind of clear rule about when you do and don't divest but he did say that divestment remained a kind of a weapon in the armory a last resort but something that they've done in the past and they're prepared to do it again in future, though it's clear that they much prefer the, the route of engagement rather than walking away. You've also
0: been looking into where a lot of this money goes that they make. And quite a lot is spent on church
2: plants. That's right, yeah. So um, as part of the Reform and Renewal Programme, uh, the money that the Church Commissioners give to the Church of England for ministry has been tweaked slightly, and now half of it um, is, can only be spent on projects that will generate growth. Um, so they're not all church plants. There are some things like um, new uh, missionaries and um, uh, f- particular programs looking at reaching out to um, uh, ethnic minorities, for example. But a large amount of money has been spent on city centre resource churches. Um, that's where uh, one church will either take over a small parish and, um, in a city centre that's at a strategic location or maybe a church that's been closed down for a while. And the thing that really caught my eye as well of that is that they found basically equivalent of some money down the back of the sofa, um, unspent research money from back in 2011, one and a half million pounds of it from a, a budget which hadn't been spent. And they decided to spend this um, just on city centre resource churches. And they named seven that have got a varying number of grants. And of those seven, interestingly, six of them are within the Holy Trinity Brompton, the HDB network.
0: Madeline, you wrote a cover story for us a few weeks ago on the HDB church plants. It's something you know a lot about. Um, There's there's a letter in this week's letters pages um, telling a slightly different story.
1: Yeah, so this was a letter I received um, from a couple who had read my feature on church planting, specifically the HDB model. Um, They wanted to to tell the story of St Thomas's in Norwich. and they described it as um, a painful experience. Um, actually, when I interviewed um, the rector of that church, um, Ian Diebel, uh, he actually described it um, as a partnership rather than a plant. Um, he arrived as a curate, but he didn't come um, with a team from HDB, so it wasn't the model that has been used elsewhere. Um, He was also quite honest about the fact that he had made um, some changes and that people had left. So um, I think the article, um, the original, um, was kind of honest about the fact that the process hadn't been entirely smooth um, and that some people had left, that services had changed. That the um, Corwell Eucharist was no longer being run. Um, But this letter, I think, was important to publish because what was missing from my original was an account um, from kind of the receiving community. Um, I interviewed a lot of planters and also neighbouring clergy, Um, but I guess it's important to hear from people who um, were kind of the receiving community.
0: There's lots more features, reviews, comments in this week's paper. Um, Madeline, does anything stand out when, as you read this week's issue?
1: Yeah. So I'm really pleased that we were able to publish an extract um, from a book written by Tony Campolo and his son Bart, Why I Left, where I Stayed. Um, Bart famously um, left the Christian faith and is now a humanist chaplain. Um, and his father is a very well-known um, Baptist pastor, writer, speaker... Um, they've written a book about their, their journeys to this point um, and we've got an extract where they talk about their relationship, the impact of um, Bart leaving the Christian faith.
2: Somewhat cheekily, I'm going to flag up my own uh, news story, uh, Surging Numbers on Pilgrimage Routes is Welcomed. Um, The thing that really struck me from writing this is about a a conference held at Canterbury Cathedral is that the numbers um, on pilgrimage routes across Europe are absolutely skyrocketing in recent years. Um, For example, uh, one of the most famous ones, the Way of St James, which goes to Santiago de Compostela, Um, about 25, uh, 30 years ago, it was getting 5,000 people a year. Um today it's 277,000 people a year. And in just four years time, it's expected to double again to 464,000 people, which is astonishing. And many, many of those are non-Christians as well. I thought it was a fascinating thing. You don't hear much about that this really ancient um, medieval form of spirituality is um, having this total rebirth.
0: I enjoyed a review by Nick Spencer of Theos of David Goodhart's new book, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. Spencer says that Goodhart reflects with probing self-critical and self-deprecating intelligence on his own doctrine, rather than throwing accusations of xenophobia, bigotry and racism at those stupid enough to disagree with him. So it's a book I think I'm going to be seeking out. In this week's Church Times, our columnist Paul Vallley writes that the election is turning out to be about much more than just Brexit. I spoke to him
3: well when when the election was first called, it seemed to me that brexit was the dominant issue. It was about a, how what kind of government we were going to have to um, to negotiate with the EU because uh, leaving the EU is the uh, the dominant political issue of our lifetime i think um, it 's it's, it's as big as that, and so i'd rather assumed that the the uh, the election was going to be about that. And so, uh, although my grandfather was one of the pioneers of the the movement, which uh, the trade union uh, penny a week movement, which which was the the forerunner of the the NHS, uh, and every time I go into vote, I can feel my granddad standing there at the side of me, thinking, saying, "Vote the right way, young man." I thought, well, I'm sure my granddad wouldn't approve of the Liberal Democrats, but I thought, well, I might vote for them because they seem to be the you know ones who were taking the giving the clearest message on on Brexit, uh, w- w- which is that once we've negotiated a deal, um, I think people should be given a chance to, to, to say yes or no to that deal, so I'm, I'm in favour of that. But then, as the election campaign has gone along, it's emerged that it's not just about brexit and
0: what is it about now i mean if you've, you've looked at the manifestos in some detail and you say you've uncovered some quite radical agendas
3: well i'm not i'm not sure how many people actually read the manifestos i mean the, the tory manifesto is 80 pages long i think you'd have to be you know a bit of a political nerd to uh, to plow your way through that but uh... I've skimmed it certainly, and I mean, what you find if you look at the manifestos is that there, there is something uh, um, attractive in in all of them. But then I suppose that's what they're designed to be. Yeah, you know, these kind of these are vote-catching exercises. Oh, let's let's scrap um, uh, car parking charges in NHS car parks. You know, this kind of th- thing that gets a disproportionate yeah, rah rah rah. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, I've been thinking really that you've got to get past this this idea that, that the manifestos and the policies are what it's about. It's not just about Brexit, I've decided. If you follow the media, they'll tell you it's about gaffes and you know, Diana walking into the furniture and quoting the wrong figures or Theresa May doing a U-turn on on, uh, on this, that and the other. I mean, Theresa May seems to have done uh, about nine U-turns if you, uh, if you count uh, them up uh, as the Financial Times have done. The media tend to, 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 to focus on all of that but I'm not convinced yet as to what it will be that will, that will make me decide what, which way to vote uh, and uh, I'm assuming that's the same for, for, for the general public we've got uh the brexit issue we've got these policies in the manifesto we've got all of the kind of the optics is a current phrase isn't it the optics of of the election with uh, trying to trip people up and uh, uh, exposing uh, things that uh, jeremy corbyn said about the ira 3 decades ago as though that's relevant but then you've got this other issue which which was there at the start and which seems to have gone away but which could come back which is who is the best future Prime Minister and given the electoral system we've got there's only two candidates and that's Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn so will it come down to that kind of presidential question in the end Um, and I think the lesson of the campaign has been that uh, things change and they change quite rapidly and uh, it's probably a bit early yet to say what what, what the balance between all those factors will be so uh, watch this space I'm going to write about it next week.
0: So you think it could be a closer run thing than people are Saying?
3: Well, the uh, assumption was that Theresa May was going to win a landslide. Um, I think now it's not clear that she will. I think she will win. But yeah, I mean, she's, she's traded off. Uh, she could have gone for a huge majority by by saying as little as possible. But she decided not to do that. She decided she wanted a strong mandate. So she's done a very detailed manifesto with loads of policies in it, and some of them not very popular. And you know, they're taking the. Uh, Uh, the winter fuel allowance of rich pensioners, that seems to have gone down all right. But the idea that uh, people are going to have to sell their homes or their homes will be sold after they die to pay for their... Their care uh, seems to have been a bit of a miscalculation on her part. That's not gone down very well at all. So she's she's made this calculation that she wants a strong a strong mandate uh, to be able to see off any kind of dissidence within her own party after the election. Um, and she may have kind of uh, trade uh, miscalculated uh, and and traded off too much of the big majority in return for the strong mandate. So th- all the, things like that have made it. Um, a much more interesting election.
0: I mean, in your piece, you quote the Conservative Manifesto where they say, you know, we reject the cult of so selfish individualism, abhor social division, injustice, unfairness and inequality, commitment to country and community and in society. Um... Is there, there's a lot here that the churches can welcome, do you think, at least in, in what's said in the
3: manifesto? Um, yeah, I certainly do. The uh, Both parties have moved to the left. The Labour Party's moved to the left, and the Tories have kind of moved moved after them. Theresa May has, has made the calculation, I think, that uh, Tory voters have got nobody to vote for except her. Uh, so she wants to grab some of the uh, uh, middle ground Labour votes in, in, in the Midlands and in the North. And so she's got a, a lot of streaks in, in her um manifesto of what, you know, red Toryism. Um, she's she's uh, much more concerned with with uh, social justice and with uh, people who are left behind and so forth than is traditionally thought of as normal for the Conservatives and uh, a lot of what what's said in that manifesto uh, could be lifted straight out of Catholic social teaching in terms of the balance between uh, social responsibilities and, and, the, and, and the creation of wealth.
0: What do you make of, of Theresa May's Christian faith in the Impact it has on her politics, if any.
3: Well, from what I understand, uh, Theresa May's uh, faith is is something that's real and and deep rooted, but she's kind of shied away from uh, from saying too much about it. People say, oh, she's the daughter of a vicar, but I think there's a bit more to it than that. I think I think if you if you look at um, the, the the kind of um, social justice agenda that she's that she's outlining here. Um, is, is I think rooted in uh, a kind of uh, Christian faith but it's not very popular in this country to to kind of admit to that you thought, you thought of as either being a bit pious or a bit insincere if you talk about your faith and so she's not doing that but I think I think she's shaped by her faith a lot of impetus for, for policy from Theresa May comes from this chap Nick Timothy who's uh, uh, one of her uh, close aides and he's said to be the man who's written this manifesto and a lot of cabinet ministers didn't actually know about it and he uh, is from Birmingham and very much you kind of, in that middle ground, you know, blue labor, red Tory, that idea that the working class need to be taken more account of. Uh, his great hero is, is Joseph Chamberlain, who was, who was a, a local guy to, 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 to where Nick Timothy, uh, grew up. And, uh, he, you know, he's quite right wing on immigration, but quite left wing on social justice. It's, it's a new kind of mixture. Uh, and that's what makes this more interesting than, than previous elections. I mean, some of the things that David Cameron did were quite laudable, but you felt as though he was kind of, uh, coming from a very predictable, centrist, slightly liberal, uh, Tory middle ground. Uh, Theresa May uh, seems to be a more interesting character, so I think I think there are more interesting times ahead, and I think that's you know, certainly interesting, and so that's certainly good for a journalist more to write about.
0: The leaders of the three major political parties wrote exclusively for the Church Times last week about international aid. Uh, you have a lot of experience in this area, Paul. What, what did you make of what their interventions?
3: Well, I thought it was very refreshing that they are all firm in their commitment to... Um, Maintaining Britain's contribution to, to, to the world uh, uh, aid need. Uh, and um, they've all mentioned uh, the, the 0.7%, um, which is um, – but people think that there's, uh, a lot of money goes uh, in aid. But 0.7% uh, of our national income is seven pence out of every ten pounds that we earn. So seven pence out of every ten pounds is 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 not is not huge generosity, but it is it is leading the world in terms of uh, uh, the the commitment that um uh that that's been asked of of the the world's nations. Theresa May said we're going to have to look at how. Uh, to spend the money in the, in uh, the most effective way that 's because she 's got the right wing on her back, uh, the sun, the Daily Mail, and a lot of right wing uh, Tories who uh, see aid as some kind of symbolic uh, it 's like a shibboleth you know they they see they see aid as as, as something which uh, is a, a, a soft sop to uh, some kind of international socialism and it 's not at all you know I worked on the Africa Commission with Tony. Blair and Blair was quite uh, clear that uh, self-interest of the of the nation uh, is involved in, in in aid. It's about getting um, markets for our goods. It's about um, creating a more stable world. Uh, so as well as all the issues of social justice, there is a there's a self-interest argument. But what was refreshing about the three leaders was that they all they all took clear points on, on the principle of it Jeremy Corbyn talked about an ethical foreign policy and said that this debate between overseas aid or domestic aid is a bogus aid the two things are not mutually exclusive it, it, Theresa May talked about how we're a kind of generous country that would never turn uh, its back on people in need and that's true you know Britain is a, is a, is a decent uh, nation If you just got to look at Comet Relief the way that people respond uh, to, to uh, uh, appeals when there's an emergency or so forth you know we are a decent Generous nation, and enshrining this 0.7% is is a way of doing that. And as Tim Farron said, you know, it comes also out of a sense for those of us who are Christians of of the call to to love our neighbour, and our neighbour is is people we may never meet. uh, But as he he puts it, you know, behind the statistics there are people, uh, and uh, although we never meet them, we're still called to love them. And uh, so, so this firm policy on aid, which they all share that that's that's a very refreshing side of british politics no one's seeking to to score cheap points on this um, and, and i'm very pleased about that
2: that's it for this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find news analysis comment book reviews and more on our website you can also find our latest subscription offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe the music this week was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. <laughs>